Hi everybody and welcome to another episode of the University of Huddersfield Paramedic Science Podcast. We've got a wonderful episode for you today. One of our lecturers, Pete Best, is interviewing Dr Andy Lockie, Vice President of the Resus Council, to talk all things resus and all things research. Sit back and enjoy. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the, pod, the University of Huddersfield Paramedic Science podcast. I'm Pete Best. Um, I'm a lecturer at the university just one day a week, and I work at the Huddersfield Royal Infirmary as an advanced practitioner um, for the rest of the week. And I've only recently found out that one of our consultants is vice president of the Rhesus Council. So that's me probably not being very observant. But to be fair, we do work at different sites. Um, so I've jumped to the opportunity to have him talk uh, on the podcast about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So I'd like to introduce uh, Andy Lockie, as I said, Vice President of the Rhesus Council, and Andy, one of the most influential people in the world in resuscitation, according to a recent poll. Is that right? Thank you very much. Wonderful introduction. Uh, very grateful for that. Uh, yes, very surprising. Very nice to see. Um, so, yes. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, so, First of all, I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the role of the Rhesus Council, because um, I know many paramedics have probably seen your logo on the bottom of the kind of cardiac arrest algorithm, um, but probably don't know much more than that. So I just wonder if you give us a bit of background of the role of the Rhesus Council. Absolutely. Well, Resuscitation Council UK was first formed back in the 1980s uh, by a group of experts who decided that uh, we needed uh, some sort of unified body to help guide uh, people on how to do resuscitation. And effectively, the, uh, the, the, the purpose of Resuscitation Council UK is ultimately to save lives by developing guidelines, influencing policy, delivering courses and supporting cutting edge research. Uh, so I've been involved with Resuscitation Council since 1993 uh, when I first became, uh, when I first did an advanced life support course uh, and to my great surprise was put forward as a potential instructor. I started to teach on courses there afterwards. Uh, was asked to be a member of the ALS subcommittee as a trainee representative in 1998 uh, and chaired that committee in, for seven years in, uh, from 2004. And now, as you say, I'm vice president of the council. Um, and it's, it's, it's a fantastic body that has representation from all parts of clinical practice with regard to resuscitation. Yeah, I can certainly, I mean, I've been on one of the ALS courses myself and, um, you know, you get right from consultant anaesthetists come on the courses, um, you know, nursing staff myself as a part with a paramedic background. It's and, and you, you that's a good thing about the course, really, the ALS courses, you get um, you get all those uh, different perspectives on um, on life support. Yeah. That's great. And, and, and even uh, even in areas that maybe don't do our courses per se and I'm, I am thinking about the pre-hospital arena uh, I know that a lot of um, paramedic training programs embed ALS principles into their courses as opposed to run uh, ALS courses which is fine uh, basically the principles that you are learning all stem back from guidelines that have been produced by uh, Resuscitation Council UK and do pre-hospital clinicians have much input into the guidelines or, or because of the, they kind of run separately on a university course, is, is that kind of more down to the universities? No, absolutely. There is input uh, and probably it's 
worthwhile me just giving a very very just quick summary as to uh, as to what we mean by guidelines so uh, the guidelines aren't just cobbled together by a group of people down in london uh, there's there's a process behind which is very robust and fits with uh, nice accreditation as well so there's an international process ilcor the international liaison committee on resuscitation uh, get together groups of experts who trawl the literature, uh, published research, and look at individual questions to get answers based around the uh, the research. And I'm part of the education uh, workforce uh, for ILCOR, uh, but there are workforces for ALS, for BLS, uh, for, uh, for for many different aspects, for paediatrics, for newborn. Uh, and then what happens is that ILCOR produces what are called uh, Consensus on Science and Treatment Recommendations, CoSTARs. And these effect effectively synthesize the evidence and produce a recommendation. And then national resuscitation councils, and we're talking uh, on a global level, things like the European Resuscitation Council, will then analyze these CoSTARs and produce guidelines. And in the UK, we distill the European guidelines to okay. fit into UK practice uh, and effectively pre-hospital uh, uh, input is is in there at every stage. So a lot of a lot of parts of the world, they have uh, pre-hospital doctors and nurses. Uh, and they factor in a lot of the groups. Um, in the UK, uh, we, we've got um, a critical care paramedic from the West Midlands called Mike Smythe, uh, who is uh, an integral member of the ILCOR BLS Task Force, and he's a co-author of the ERC and RCUK BLS guidelines. So there is pre-hospital input from the UK, there's paramedic input, but also it's important to remember that all guidelines have to be open to public comment as yeah. part of their accreditation process. So there's an opportunity for pre-hospital clinicians of all nature uh, to input into the development of those guidelines. And so yes. Work in a practical sense, do they, is there, is there a website or, or yes. is it yes. open on your website, the Research Council? No, no. I, it, so the the uh, public consultation uh, went uh, in for the uh, ILCOR process and the ERC process. In the UK, uh, we have uh, distilled down the ERC guidelines, so we've not needed to replicate oh. that. But when the ERC guidelines were being discussed, we directed all of our membership to the ERC website to make comment. OK, that's great. Um, you've been involved in the Research Council, as you say, since 1993. I just wondered um, what is the most important change that has happened since you started in terms of number of lives saved? And please say it was the Vinnie Jones advert. Do you remember <laughs> that? The, I do. He slides it, press, press on the sovereign. Um, I think that I think that was a great advert. But in all seriousness, is, is that yeah. the kind of thing, that kind of public information Absolutely. campaign that, that makes the biggest difference? Or is it? Is it, do you think something else is perhaps, perhaps no, saved I, lives? I think there are two things, and you've touched on on the first and probably the most important one, which is uh, an increased emphasis on the basics. Uh, so we're, we're obviously keen to expand and uh, to look at new and innovative ways of delivering resuscitation, but we can never forget that the basics are incredibly important. So the Vinnie Jones advert from the British Heart Foundation was one of the early key interventions to just tell people again basic life support cpr uh is 
absolutely essential. Uh, and I've been involved over sort of the, the last 10 years in a conjoined campaign with BHF, St John Ambulance and British Red Cross to try and get CPR as a mandatory element onto school curriculum. And we've yeah. now been successful in three out of four of the UK countries. Uh, and Northern Ireland hopefully isn't too far behind. And we've already seen the impact of that on pre-hospital care in terms of increased ROSC, uh, sorry, return of spontaneous circulation. And I'm sure uh, many pre-hospital clinicians, paramedics uh, and, and, and technicians who are listening to this will have seen the benefits of turning up to a, an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest victim who's had good quality uh, CPR right from the get-go and, and it's, it's translating into better outcomes. So that's one of the things. And then also we've seen lots of innovative and new ideas that have been developed and evaluated. App, app technology, uh, so use of gamified learning. Uh, and, and these are all fantastic uh, new innovations, but we've just got to remember that they should never be at the expense of the basics. Yeah, so uh, I mean, you, you see that on the on the the kind of front page almost of the, of the ALS document, don't we? The chain of survival, the, the key to getting the basics right: early defibrillation, early CPR, and um, like you say, I think ambulance services. You know, it's you get there, and you you know there's a better chance when there's you can see good quality CPR being done in the street or in the patient's home. And like you say, I know the Research Council is a good, strong advocate for getting... I, I didn't realise that it was already on the curriculum. Is it already on the curriculum then in UK schools? So it is... Now, from this year, it is a mandatory part of the English school curriculum. In Scotland, although not part of the curriculum, every single local council has signed up to delivery of CPR training in all of their schools. The Welsh uh, Senate uh, voted uh, to make this a mandatory part of the curriculum for 2022 onwards, and that was literally less a few weeks ago uh, so it, uh, and there are debates ongoing in in, in Northern Ireland now to uh, to hopefully bring uh, bring training onto their curriculum as well. I was thinking that was that being involved in kind of community um, or, or in education teaching CPR in schools um, it would be quite a good thing for some paramedics and some paramedics might be very interested in doing that so is there any practical tips that you can give us in, in terms of getting involved in things like that? I, I think the, the the main the main tip is please get involved. Yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, paramedics, technicians, all healthcare staff, uh, we've got expertise uh, around uh, this sort of topic, uh, and it's often very valued. Uh, and it, there's a whole range of ways that people can contribute, uh, be it from uh, offering training in local schools, and, and particularly with things like the Restart to Heart campaign which uh, uh, essentially and particularly in the Yorkshire region uh, where where there are so many schools who've signed up uh, to that uh, and and just by going into schools and teaching kids it's very very rewarding they really soak up this sort of training they love it they really enjoy it but it's not just about schools uh, I have to tell people teach your own family teach people in your own house it's about self-preservation, you know, God forbid, but we, we never know uh, that a sudden cardiac death is not discriminatory. It can occur to people of all ages uh, and even people who've been previously fit and well. So look after yourself. Make sure that those around you have been trained in, in what to do properly. Is there any um, age that you'd, you'd recommend in teaching CPR to? I've got some boys who are six, six and eight. Mm -hmm. um, 
should I should I be teaching them straight yeah. at that, that kind of age? Ab- all, all ages. All ages. So you'll notice that the European Resuscitation Guidelines and the soon to be released uh, UK guidelines, we do not stipulate an age, a minimum age. Uh, we do know that uh, being able to deliver quality chest compressions is related to body mass index and usually it's about 10 to 12 years old by the time people uh, can deliver quality uh, chest compressions but that shouldn't stop you from teaching uh, the concepts to younger children and they can be taught that uh, and, and it uses it as basically it underpins their further learning in later years but also they can learn concepts like calling for help talking somebody through what to do so we recommend all ages of kids are taught uh, CPR and also uh, and also AED awareness. I feel I feel you know in the position I'm in I, I haven't taught them I've broached that subject at all uh, but I'll do that you. tonight I'll do that tonight. Um, the last couple of years um, so we, say we were talking about way, sorry Pete by the way when you do teach them tonight yeah. gamified learning you, you using online games are really successful in kids and i can really recommend i've got a a, a, a no financial conflict of interest here but the but resuscitation council uk have produced an app called lifesaver which is free to download we don't get any money for people downloading it but it's been it, it, it we were a runner-up at the baftas with it uh we've oh, wow. got uh, great research which has shown it's really effective in kids and there's a basic version that uses tablets or uh, smartphones there's also a virtual reality version where you don't need any expensive kit you just get google cardboard and a firm cushion and kids love learning cpr by using lifesaver lifesaver.org.uk We'll give that a go, and and they they love anything to do with the phone or the tablet. So uh, that, that'll be a solve for them. Yeah. The University of Huddersfield Paramedic Science podcast is sponsored by Class Professional, providing you with the best educational resources for study, the best support tools for practice, and a range of continuing education materials to develop your career. One such product is Parapass, the Innovation Excellence award-winning smartphone app which is the go-to learning and development resource for emergency care workers. The app contains over 2,000 multiple choice questions on the JRCalc guidelines, a whole range of standby CPD resources, case scenarios, quizzes and self-assessment questions to keep you on your toes. The app is available on Apple and Android devices and costs just $3.99 per month or $39.99 for the year. Go to the Apple App Store or Google Play Store to download and subscribe today. So the last couple of years, there's been um, some pretty large studies in cardiac arrest that I've found, and particularly in the pre-hospital arena, we're talking about Paramedic 2, which assess the 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 um, adequate, the um, necessity of using adrenaline in uh, cardiac arrest, and then there was Airways 2. And for those who don't know about Airways 2, it was um, it was an out of hospital cardiac arrest um, advanced airway trial, um, which compared a, a superglottic airway device. So things like an LMA or a, um, or an eye gel um, with tracheal intubation. And it showed that um, it had a comparable functional patients had a comparable functional neurological outcome at 30 days. And it was a large trial it had a 9,300 patients near enough 
Um, so I wondered if, if following on from that trial, is, is that definitely it now for pre-hospital intubation? Because I think I think as paramedics, we, we're quite we're a bit protective, protective of our skill of pre-hospital intubation because it's, it's quite a like, Gucci thing to do. Um, but I know now London don't don't intubate mm-hmm. um, their patients. And I think in Yorkshire, only clinical supervisors carry the intubation kit. So do you think that's it now? Or do you think we should stop stop doing pre-hospital intubate, intubation altogether? The bottom line is that advanced interventions that come with associated risk should only be undertaken by those who are proficient to do it. And the guidelines that are just coming out uh, recommend that only those with a high success rate, in other words, over 95% within two attempts, should be doing intubation. And it's important to remember that this is not limited to pre-hospital. This is across all clinical domains, because as with any other skill, it it does depend on frequency of practice. Um, So we're talking about hospital practice as well. So I'll give you I'll give you a key example. I last intubated somebody in anger 12 years ago. Oh, wow. I because I I work in an emergency department with a fantastic uh, anaesthetic uh, cover. uh, And the vast majority of the time there is an anaesthetist present who does this every day. I personally would not attempt intubation, despite the fact that I've been fully trained. I had a year of anaesthetic training. And uh, for many years, I did this on a regular basis. I would use a supraglottic airway. Why is that? Because I know that there is a higher risk that I will inadvertently put that tube into the esophagus. And that would be devastating for the patient. And we've known this for many, many, many years, that there is a high risk of a fatal outcome from simple mistakes. And it goes back to the, the, the what I said earlier. Basics are important. So. I, I I get what you're saying, uh, but I don't think Gucci approach is yeah. in the patient's best interest. And I would much rather that somebody pre-hospital who infrequently intubates uses a supraglottic airway where there isn't that risk of esophageal intubation. And the only people who should be doing this are those who are doing it on a regular basis. And that's not just pre-hospital, that's in hospital as well. Absolutely. And and then it was the same case in in paramedic practice. I mean, it may be that you went almost a year without probably intubating anyone. And then, then, you know, you maybe get two, three in a week. It's just the way that things roll sometimes. But but yeah, you'd certainly feel a bit rusty. And and given the fact the ambulance service is so busy, it's not like you can, can, can... get on a mannequin every every yeah. other week and practice which is the other kind of option of, of keeping well, up skill isn't it it is but ultimately as you and i both know uh, mannequins are not realistic yeah uh, they don't reflect and the other thing which i think we have to remember is that the pre-hospital arena is not the same as a brightly lit warm resuscitation room with an odp by your side with a patient at an optimal height uh, the pre-hospital arena is totally, totally different. And the additional challenges that poor lighting, poor weather conditions, poor environmental issues, uh, lack of, uh, of, of people around uh, and the backup uh, safety mechanisms, uh, you know, the, the, maybe the lack of entitled CO2 uh, active monitoring, uh, all of these things add up to a greater risk for the patient. And we've got to keep the patient at the centre of all this. Yeah, and, and whilst... And- and whilst it feels really good to be able to sling a tube into somebody's trachea, 
it's 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 a lot safer for the patient to put a supraglottic airway in if you're not doing this on a regular basis yeah and the time involved as well i mean it's it, it yeah. seconds literally isn't it but um to get the um supraglottic airway in but by the time you've got all your intubation kit out and um you know time's time's ticking away all the time which um and, and are you also remembering the basics because yeah uh, whilst you're uh, doing that you're then not getting quality chest compressions yeah. and it's also distracting you from thinking about things like defibrillation as well absolutely um and also some recent research the moving moving away from from airways I, th I think i think i think that points you know we should move on shouldn't we we, we should move on just concentrate on supraglottic airways um but I, th I think that's in the past now. Recent, recent especially the re resuscitation to recovery document I was reading, the 2017 document, um, which was a national framework to improve out of hospital cardiac arrest. Um, and, and that seemed to promote um, something called uh, cardiac arrest centres. Mm -hmm. um, and for those who don't know, I mean, my take on it is they tend to work like major trauma centres. So if, if you're out in a hospital, out of hospital, you're dealing with an out of hospital cardiac arrest and you get a ROSC on that patient. And rather than taking them to the nearest ED, you'd take them to a, a cardiac arrest centre. And um, most patients who have a cardiac arrest, um, we know that the underlying cause is probably a cardiac cause. So this cardiac arrest centre will have the facility be, to be able to deal with that. So things like PPCI and it will have the ability to um, coronary angiogram and things like that. But but from from talking to paramedics and, and um, myself, I mean, it was three years since I've been on the road, but there didn't seem to be much um, much about that in the field so i was just wondering are they really a goer are they, is, is the idea gain much traction it seems to have been talked about for a while but i just wondered if it was if it was still still something that is, is being considered yeah it, it's it's a fascinating area because uh and it it's not totally black and white as most things in resuscitation and it depends on what your definition is of a cardiac arrest center and there is no real consistent definition uh, even globally around this a lot of the work has come from places like germany where they have set these up uh, and i think that's the important thing is setting things up de novo is different from trying to retrofit into established uh, regional uh, models of care uh, so most people's understanding of cardiac arrest center is that it is a center that provides emergency pci bundled care with targeted temperature management, protolyzed uh, cardiorespiratory support and prognostication. And probably the most important element of that is the ability to deliver emergency PCI. So, so in the West Yorkshire region, for example, the only hospital that can do that currently is Leeds. Um, but uh, a lot of the other aspects are delivered uh, in various other, uh, other hospital units. Um, if you look at the evidence, from around the world, it's currently based upon a systematic review of 21 observational studies and one pilot RCT. So in other words, there's a big research gap and we're looking at, uh, and there's more and more research coming out as time goes by, but the evidence at the moment actually stripping it back even further, you talk about taking directly to a cardiac arrest centre, the evidence doesn't really differentiate between the benefits of primary transfer or even secondary transfer. So it may be 
that to going into a local hospital for stabilization and then onto a cardiac arrest center may be as beneficial as direct transfer. We don't know. And it really depends upon the elements of what's in that cardiac arrest center. And you've got to look at this as well when producing guidelines um, that not everywhere is the same. So in London, you've got the heart attack centres uh, that are fairly clustered together. Uh, within the West Yorkshire region, we've got one uh, unit that could be designated, I guess, under this terminology as a cardiac arrest centre. And you've got parts of the country where there's a lot of rural areas. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's still a, a work in process, really. Um, and, and the evidence that is there shows improved survival to discharge for cardiac arrest centres, but no evidence for longer term outcomes. So I think that's why it hasn't probably gained the traction that you expect uh, in that uh, it, it's, it's, compa it's comparing apples and pears in, in some parts of the country because the setup we have in one region doesn't necessarily replicate the setup in other regions. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you if you have a cardiac arrest in the middle of Scotland somewhere in the Highlands, you know, you're going to be a long way to the nearest centre, whether that be a cardiac arrest centre or a local hospital. Yeah. And it's very different, as you say, from from central Manchester, where you've got kind of four hospitals within um, two miles of each other. Um, it's 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 yeah, comparing apples and pears, as you say. It's certainly something. It, it it's it's one of the things that will uh, develop, I think, over the next few years. But ultimately. Uh, pulling together a definition of a cardiac arrest centre uh, doesn't necessarily then mean that a hospital in a region will automatically be able to become a cardiac arrest centre because the, it's, it's not just about one specialty. There's many specialties that need to be working together to, to get that definition. I imagine there's a lot of politics behind and funding behind that as well, you know, to get the status of a of a cardiac arrest centre would probably bring you more money as a hospital and this, that and the other. And Well, and, and also there's the, the other important aspect that isn't covered in a lot of these and our, uh, our guidelines that are coming out really, really recommend this is it's not just about the provision of that care. There's the aftercare as well. And one of the biggest gaps uh, in uh, provision at the moment in the UK is a provision of ongoing care, uh, both physically and psychologically, for cardiac arrest survivors, uh, and and that is a that to me is an integral part of any cardiac arrest centre. It's not just washing their hands of the patient once they've survived. They need they need support after the event. Exactly, and you mentioned there the the European research moving on a bit. The European research guidelines have just come out. Um, and I, I mean, I didn't realise it was a direct flow down to the UK guidelines from the European um, research guidelines. So I, was just, I mean, one of my questions was uh, whether we, we could get any anything out of you as to major changes in the UK guidelines. But it didn't seem to me that there was any major changes in well, the European Research Council guidelines. No. Uh, so basically, this uh, well, there, there are. But it depends on which bits you're looking at. Okay. Uh, so you're properly talking about the, the medical science. Uh, and yes, in the medical science aspect of it, uh, there aren't that many uh, changes. And that really reflects that over the last 15 years of the uh, 15 to 20 years of the ILCOR process, uh, all of the existing evidence has been thoroughly analysed now. And we've got to the stage where 
were up to date really with historic evidence and guidelines will now only really change as new evidence emerges. The UK, we distill down the European guidelines, but there will be changes where it's relevant to UK practice. So, for example, uh, in the UK guidelines, which are due out on the 5th of May, there's a section looking specifically at UK epidemiology as opposed to European epidemiology. We talk about issues uh, that are just pertinent to the UK, uh, such as some of the ethical and legal aspects, uh, things like the respect process and some of the initiatives uh, like the UK Restart a Heart initiative uh, are covered in the guidelines as well. I mean, I was always taught this as a paramedic. So as soon as we went to a cardiac arrest, it was like, get some fluids up, put some fluids up. Um, but that seems to have, have had less of an impetus in the, the European guidelines. So it says don't just put up fluids unless hypervolemia is suspected. Um, I just wondered if you agree with that and um, what your practice was. Absolutely. Um I think it's important to remember that there is very limited evidence around the use of fluid boluses, particularly in adult cardiac arrest. Um, there is actually some evidence of potential harm, and that's why uh, the European guidelines and the UK guidelines are suggesting against that now. Um, and it's difficult to understand uh, exactly where that harm is coming from because the studies that have looked at intravenous flow, fluid have been the studies looking at the use of cooled IV fluids as part of targeted temperature management. And we're not sure if that potential harm comes from the fluid or the temperature of the fluid. So where there is evidence uh, that suggests potential harm, we have to guide people away from that. Uh, so that's why there's no, it's no longer recommended as a routine use. And if you think about it, if, if, if somebody has had a cardiac arrest, for example, due to a rhythm disorder, at the time they have their cardiac arrest, they will be normovolemic. If you pile 500, 1,000 mils of fluid into the vascular compartment, as that heart is just starting to function again, you've automatically increased the work it needs to do, which to me intuitively sounds counterproductive. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree with this. And I think uh, it's important that they say, unless hypovolemia is suspected, so if you've got somebody who's a trauma victim or if they've had uh, an anaphylactic reaction, uh, which we know uh, causes a relative hypovolemia or sepsis, then fine, fluid is indicated in those. Uh, but if somebody has had just what looks like a primary cardiac dysrhythmia, then no, do not give boluses of fluid. And we know, of course, that that is the, the majority of cases, those with a, a primary cardiac cause yep. as opposed to sepsis or, or, or traumatic arrest. Um, so going forward then, I mean, I mean, you say there was going to be, you know, no major change to the medical side of, of the guidelines. Um, I just wondered if we're, we're now at the point of, of kind of only making very marginal gains in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. If, if we're now kind of, you know, have, have we reached a ceiling of development in, in cardiac arrest? Is there any is there any big things you can see? I mean, I know we kind of got things like um, ECMO, which is, is kind of basically, from my understanding, taking the blood out of the body, oxygenating it and putting it back in again through a special machine and, and kind of 
hypothermic cardiac arrests and things like that. But I wonder if that if that's all overcomplicating it, and because it's a relatively simple thing, cardiac arrest, the heart stopped working. We just need in, in that initial phase, we just need to keep the air going in, the blood going round and round. So, do, do you think there's much more to come in terms of major changes to to guide like medical guidelines? Right. Well, I think I think this stems back again to my comment before about the medical science. Remember, there's the Epstein formula for survival, and that's three components, three very important components of which medical science is just one of them. You mentioned uh, in, uh, sort of future directions with things like ECMO and stuff like that. Yes, we know that ECMO, extracorporeal CPR, uh, it's, it's rescue therapy for selected patients when conventional ALS is failing. And it's there to specific uh, to facilitate specific interventions like PCI in settings where in which it can be implemented. So there's lots of research looking at that, and that may be a future direction of travel. But as I previously previously mentioned, we've probably got to the stage now where we've caught up with the medical science aspect of it. Utstein formula survival also includes local implementation. And that really harks back to what I was saying a bit earlier about different. Uh, yeah, we, we talk about local implementation at a national level, but we can also talk about it on a, a regional uh, level as well. So uh, the uh, facilities in one region of the UK may be different from another. And we've just got to make sure we tailor what we're doing to that, that local implementation. But to me, uh, I'm a medical educationalist uh, and uh, I have a huge interest in education. Uh, I'm part of the ILCOR Education Task Force and I co-wrote the education guidelines for the ERC and the RCUK. Education is a key aspect of resuscitation and this is where we can make some big gains. So it may be that uh, there are no new developments in the science, but the way that we teach that science is critical and can improve survival. How do I mean that? Well, let's look at this last uh, last 18 months uh, with the COVID pandemic. We've already mentioned the advanced life support course. So uh, way back about 10 years ago, when I was the chair of the ALS subcommittee, I uh, instigated uh, work to develop a blended learning version of the ALS course called the eALS course. Uh, and we did some large scale research, educational research, which showed that the educational outcomes from the ELS course were identical to the conventional course. And I'm so glad we did that now because over this last year, we've been able to continue running the EALS course as a blended learning option, despite all the COVID restrictions, whereas other courses have struggled uh, to run. So by developing uh, better ways to teach we can improve patient survival. And uh, one of the, uh, the main recommendations from the education chapter is based around a systematic review and meta-analysis that I did a couple of years ago, which shows that prior participation of one or more members of a cardiac arrest resuscitation team on an accredited advanced life support course leads to better patient outcomes. I'm just going to pause there for a second to let that sink in, because this is the golden nugget we're looking for all these years. ALS courses save lives. And that 
uh, we're now doing work looking at other courses. Uh, there's some evidence from abroad that neonatal courses do the same. Uh, I'm leading some work at the moment looking at all other life support courses. But essentially, we may be coming to a level where we're looking at uh, bespoke uh, additional medical science things to, to analyse. But there's still a lot of work that we can do with education to ensure that people uh, have the skills, have the knowledge, but also retain those skills and that knowledge for a longer period of time. That's great. And that probably be so if we had any budding paramedic researchers out there, that would probably be, that medical education would be a, 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 a good way to focus their research if they wanted to um, advance cardiac the improve, improvements in cardiac arrest. If, if there are any budding paramedic researchers, uh, they need to get in touch with me on this because uh, I, I'm, I'm in, the, in the process of doing some work, as I know you do as well, well with the University of Huddersfield. Uh, and uh, there's, there's quite a lot of work uh, that can be done, quite a lot of research that can be done. And I'd be delighted to hear from anybody who wants to look into that further. That's great. Andy Lockie, thank you very much for joining us on the uh, Paramedic Science Podcast. Um, if anyone wants to approach me for Andy's details about, about that research, I'm sure I could, um, if, if it's that's all right with Andy, I'm sure I could pass yep. that on to any any students who are interested. Andy Lockie, once again, thank you very much for joining us. My uh, pleasure. And we'll see you all next time. What a fantastic episode that was. Our sincere thanks to Pete Best and Dr. Andy Lockie for that wonderful piece of podcasting. As ever, guys, please do check out the Parapass app, the award-winning smartphone app, which is the go-to learning and development resource for emergency care workers and help us to support our sponsors. Otherwise, do check us back out in the next couple of weeks for some more fantastic podcast content. Otherwise, stay safe and we look forward to speaking to you all soon.